Weekend. Variety. Wireless. You're about 25 minutes away from the very last edition of Jesus Make It Stop with Glenn Harper. On this, the 100th anniversary of Armistice, this is what we've been linked to. People are fighting and dying up to the 11th hour of the 11th month in 1918. And uh, unfortunately, that's a fact that some of them are killed in the last few days of the war and indeed some are killed on the last morning of the war. John Dibvig, up next, though, with his letter from America. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. John, the big letter from America. Hello, That's John. That's me. That's me. Yeah, 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 yeah. You happy with the, the midterms? Yeah. How they turned out? Yeah. Hey. You know, I was, but you know, on the night, I wasn't. On the night, I was a little down. I thought, oh, shit, you know, they because they lost uh, the Florida race yeah. and uh, the governor race and, and Beto lost in Texas and, you know, they lost. A, and Florida was early, so that kind of put a damper on things, you know. I thought Gillum was really going to get the governorship there. Um, but then as the days have gone on, wow, it, it, it really was a blue wave. I mean, the, the Democrats are going to pick up between 35 and 40 House seats, that's the most since uh, Watergate. That's over 40 years ago. Mm. So, and, and the thing about the, the, the midterms, um, it just, you know, the, the voting was big. It was almost as big as a presidential election. So that, that was good. A lot more people came out and a lot of diversity, really a lot. Over 100 women got in. Uh, two Native American women got in. Uh, two Muslim women got in. Actually, in the presidential election, there are a, a lot of, an enormous amount of women got in as well. Yep, 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 definitely. So, yeah. you know... Uh, I hope we stop saying it's diversity, actually. Well, I know, but... I mean, you, they're half the freaking species. I know, but you have to, you know, uh, openly... No, you don't. Openly gay guy got in and as a governor of Colorado. Good one. So, you know, so the midterms were, in that sense, I were, just pray for the day when it's indifference to that sort of thing. Well, yeah, 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 you're right. It should be. But, I mean, you yeah. look at the Republican Party, you look at all the committees, there's no women on them. Mm. None. Mm. I mean, it's all men. And they're discussing women's health, you know, reproductive rights. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's a... Condoleezza Rice did well. Yeah. Uh, who? Condoleezza Rice. Yeah. She was in the Republican cabinet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She got in. She got, Well, yeah, there have been some. But I'm just saying, when you look at the committees where the decisions are really made, where right. a lot of stuff is, you know, dictated, it's all men. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, so, yeah, no, it was really good to see that. Um, it's going to be real interesting. You know, you know, and there's still some races uh, outstanding. Florida. I mean, what is it with Florida? And, I don't know. And, and Brevard County. That's the same damn county we had back in 2000 with Gore and Bush and they had and the hanging chads and the guys eyeballing it, that famous photo. And it's the same thing again. You know, they they, they got problems in Brawford County. They just didn't count them all or whatever. So. Al Gore eventually just gave up trying he, he on did. that, didn't he? It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And he he didn't he didn't fight it fully. He no, just, he kind of just you know. I think he realized it was looking desperate and not good. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. But I you know I don't I don't really buy that. I mean it's like because um, uh, politics is a dirty game in America. It's dirty everywhere, I suppose, but mm. it's really dirty in America. I mean two things you know came out uh, of the midterms. One diversity which you don't like but it did no no it, no i just think yeah i, I hope the word as yeah. a de def defining yeah. thing goes away well what i like about it is it, it's a more representation of what america is about to women 
Yeah. Because they've got the vote. They can vote for women. Women, vote. Yeah. If you want women in, vote for women. Vote, vote for Men, them. if you want women in, vote for women. Yeah. But I, I just hope it's the best person is going to be, who cares if it's a man or woman, a trans or a gay? I know. I hear you. That's, but, that's what I'm after. But the other thing that came out of this was uh, voter suppression. I mean, it was really evident. There was mm. just a lot of voter suppression. But then you got Florida, the governor's race and the senator's race, they're still counting. They have to do a recount. It was so close. And in Arizona, for the Senate race, um, it's still going on for another two or three days. And in Mississippi, the Senate race is still counting. And there's about eight eight or nine uh, house districts that haven't been counted up. So it, it yeah. takes a little bit longer than you think. And I love Trump after the thing. He said, oh, yeah, we won. And <laughs> yeah, go, yeah. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. And the interesting thing, see, to me is a lot of people... Well, he did get the Senate, so that's... Well, they, they already had the Senate. Yeah. You know, so... <laughs> They had the Senate, and it was stacked against They kept the Senate, then. They kept the Senate, mm. and the fact that this time around, because the Senate, only a third of the Senate rotates every every uh, election time. Mm. So it, there were 24 or 26 Democratic seats and only nine Republican seats up. You know in those really close-counting um, elections where it's, oh, it's so close, and you go for a recount, and you go yeah. for a recount. I don't think anyone on either side, however it turns out, should be too unhappy because it's a bit like going to the uh, third match official and did the ball go over the line? Yeah. Did it or didn't it? Was that a forward pass? Yeah. You're looking at it 15 times. times yeah. And did, did, was the ball in the net or not? Well, or did it go over the line for a goal? For goodness sake, put the thing in the back of the net and, you know, have a clear decision. Yep. If it goes on, it could go either way. You can't yeah. cry. But, you know, the th yeah, but they do already. Ron DeSantis, yeah, yeah. the guy that, you know, thinks he won the governorship, the Republican guy, says, oh, no, let's put you know, the election's over. Let's yeah. put it behind us. But one interesting thing about the Florida election is, you know, that mail bomber that sent out all those bombs, well, the whole postal facility was shut down by the FBI. Because that's where he put, a, you know, the, the bombs went out of. So a lot of votes didn't get to the electoral offices. Yeah, they were, thought they, they might explode. Yeah, well, whatever. So mm. that, I mean, that whole facility was shut down. So now they're they're looking at that and seeing how many, you know, packages of votes were in that. I mean, there's a lot of different things. So those votes are going to get counted, I hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they'll still, I mean, they've gone, you know, I mean, Rick Scott, the governor, you know, he called for, you know, an investigation immediately into everything. How good's the Postal Service? Because this would be a bit of a worry. If this was a news, we are one of these bombers in New Zealand, I'd still be worried about a few turning up. Yeah. Because it takes weeks to get anything yeah, here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really changed. Yeah. yeah. You know, but the other thing is, you know, everybody's saying to the Democrats, oh, don't, you know, don't be too harsh on Trump. Don't, you know, d bullshit, man. You got the power, baby. Nail his ass to the wall because this guy has been a jerk the whole two years and he's still a jerk. He didn't, he's over in Paris and he didn't go to the U.S. cemetery in, in Paris from World War One because it was raining. Uh, how pathetic can you get? Really? Grow a pair. Yeah. Oh, dear. But anyway, does he realise that America did turn up in World War One? I? I mean, the sort of thing that George W. Bush might forget. Nineteen seventeen, we were there for yeah, a year yeah. and a half. We, yeah, yeah we, we got in there you eventually. You finished it off nicely. <laughs> Everybody had run out of steam. Yeah, you guys yeah, were yeah. fresh. Yeah, we brought in the bench. Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> Wish you could say time out in one of those things. Yeah. yeah all right. Um, now, more Trump stuff from yeah, you? Yeah, this is just notes that I've written during the week as mm. the stuff's gone on. It's, you know, it's, a matter, it's an amazing amount of perception. 
uh, for a lot of people. You know, and Trump is one of those guys, honestly, that he could sell snow to Eskimos. Mm. I mean, he's a great storyteller. He's a, he's he's got that gift of the gab of convincing you shit that you you shouldn't believe. Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, came out this week and said, you know, if Obama had the numbers, the job numbers that Trump had, well, the left media would be going nuts. They'd be drooling. They'd be doing this. They'd be doing that. Well, the the numbers did come out. And Obama, in, in Trump's first 21 months, he created 4,054,000 jobs. And Obama, in his last 21 months, same time period, created 4,447,000 jobs. Oh, well, good on them both. So, yeah, Gold good on star. them. But, you know, the thing is, you know, I mean, Lindsey Graham saying, oh, you know, Obama had worse numbers. Of, Trump's got great. And it's not true. No, it's just, had, they are conveniently forgetting that Obama... Oh, heavens. Taking the White House at that time. Yeah. What a hospital pass. World's biggest reception. Yeah. I got to read you two things, though. Uh, A reporter went around uh, to the rallies because Trump was having so many rallies and (laughs) talking to people why they they supported Trump. You got two of these things here are, are, are killers. This Denny Elkins guy said he couldn't explain why Trump felt compelled to lie so much, but in the end, it wasn't important. I'm more comforted having him as president even if he doesn't tell the truth all the time. It makes me ill to think that Hillary could have been president. In my opinion, you can't trust the thing she says. <laughs> Unbelievable. And listen to this woman. I can't really say that anything he says is true, but I trust him. Right. Really? You Serious? Know, it's a type of, I really still think it's a type of lies. You said he's got the gift of the gab. I don't think he has. He looks to me, he sounds to me almost always like one of those brothers-in-law that if you're at the pub and he's had a few, oh, yeah. they're just slightly overconfident yeah. and and going, oh, I think this and I think that and would you like another one? Yeah. And oh, yeah. he's that guy. Oh, he is. I mean, I wouldn't go within a bar of him. I, I, I would know immediately he's an asshole bullshit con man. Mm. Immediately. But for I don't know why, but for some reason he's convinced all these numbskulls in America that, you yeah. know, he shits gold. I don't, and I, I and don't the lies it. he tells are the sort of lies a seven-year-old tells. It, they're easily I don't, discounted. I don't, yeah, yeah, but see, that's that's the thing. It's, I, they don't strike me as being really, really nasty, devious, <laughs> evil lies because no. I don't think he's got that depth. No, no, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. You know, the other thing that's kind of interesting this this in this midterm election... Actually, was, no, before you start that, yeah. you know, there's this Dutch guy who's wanting to be known as 45, 49 years old instead of 69. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that, yeah. Trump. Let's yeah. do that. He's yeah. officially 10. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, 10-year-olds, maybe seven and a half, eight. Yeah, 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 yeah I get, you know, I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. We've solved it. See, now that's, there's a... a a, a moment, situation where that would just work perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Now, in every election, everybody says the economy is the deal. If you got a great economy, you're fine. Oh, unless you're at war or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the economy. Most people worry about their economy. It's the economy, stupid, as yeah. Clinton said. Yeah, yeah. Did but, he? But uh, no, it was uh, James Carville, actually. Oh, sorry. Yeah, James Carville. He's a, a Democratic strategy guy. Mm. Um, and he did say, it's the economy, stupid, which he wrote down on every piece of paper for Clinton's campaign. Just talk about the economy. You're doing well. Mm. But in, in America right now, you know, we've got a good economy, and yet 54% of the country thinks we're going in the wrong direction. Wrong economic direction. Yeah, 
wrong economic direction. Only mm-hmm. 30, 38% think that we're going the right. So that's that's weird. I mean, everything in America is weird right now. That is strange. Very, yeah. I mean, it's very strange. I thought strange. would be one compensatory but then, thing that be, would make feel better. Because, feel but, better. but then they didn't talk about the economy. They just refused to talk about it. They talked about this caravan. Mm. And, oh, and guess what? Mm. They talked about this caravan incessantly after the midterms. What? 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 Oh, where is the what, caravan? What, what caravan? Who are you talking about? Oh, somebody coming to America? Why are they coming to a caravan? I Fox, can't see any tow well, bar. It's kind of a, a mobilization. It's no tow bar with an Anglo or a Crusader. Yeah. But, you know, Fox News, they, they've covered this incessantly yeah. 10, 12, 15 times a day. Yeah. Not once now. Nah. Dropped it like a hot potato. Mm. You know, I mean, the big news this week, though, on Trump is he fired Jeff Sessions, the yeah. attorney general. Yeah. All right, now, that's caused a lot of consternation, um, mainly because... <laughs> <laughs> Typical Trump. You know, this is, you know, he hires a guy named Matt Whitaker, who is a stooge, who's a bumbling political hack. This guy is from Iowa. And uh, just to give you exa- an example of how ridiculous this guy is, besides talking about the Russia investigation, he said that the Supreme Court got Marbury versus Madison wrong. And Marbury versus Madison was one of the big first Supreme Court decisions in 1803. Marbury was a guy that was um, a friend of John Adams. And when John Adams lost his election to Jefferson in 1800, Adams, before he left office, appointed himself as a judge and all his cronies as judges. And then when he got out of office and, and Jefferson got in, Marbury is one of a couple of guys that didn't get their papers from Madison, the oh. Secretary of State. So he took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled against him and named and officially documented that the Constitution of the United States is not a political statement, but a rule of law. It's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we base everything on. The Constitution, the rule of law in America. And this idiot that is now the Attorney General said they got it wrong <laughs> and came up with some other both. But the other thing about this guy is for the last two years, he's been advertising for this job in the news media by agreeing with Trump that it's a witch hunt, that Mueller doesn't have the authority to do this, that, you know, you could pick somebody and just, you know, get rid of Mueller or just not give him any funds so he wouldn't go. And so now he's the attorney general who was overlooking the Mueller investigation. And Trump picked him. And the worst thing about this son of a bitch, he was a front man for a company that scammed investors out of $26 million, which the FTC made the company fold and repay that money. And now they're under FBI investigation. And he's under investigation. And he's the number one law guy in America. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then, during this period before he was named, he was in the Oval Office a squillion times talking to Trump because he was in the Department of Justice as the chief of staff. So he's talking to Trump, trying to pass on information about what's going on. Trump goes, eh, don't, don't really know this guy. Don't, don't really know him. I don't, I don't know much about him. You know, they tell me he's a good man, top man, top man. That's why I picked him. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just unbelievable. Official how... age, seven. 
What's that? Official age? Seven. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, you've got it. You have got two or three minutes, Max, to talk yeah. about. That should be plenty to yeah. talk about this cat, James Whitey Bulger. James Whitey Bulger. You like this one, Graham. This, this guy was a classic mob. Mob chief, mob kingpin in South Boston, and um, when he was young, he got he got caught uh, for robbing a bank. They sent him to Alcatraz for 20 years, but he volunteered to take an LSD to get LSD injections. They were doing experiments yeah. in those days, so he got, he did that, and so he got out in three years. But he got all screwed up, you know. They just really kind of messed him up. So then he goes back to Boston after that. Uh, becomes d the leader of the Winter Hill Gang and killed over 20 people, you know, strangled women with his bare hands, shot people in chairs. I mean, he really bad, bad guy. And the thing, the interesting thing... In chairs, that's the dizzy limit. Yeah, well, it is. It is. Chained down, bang. Oh. But, you know, the, 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 the weird thing about this guy was the FBI recruited him to be on their side because what he did, they said, okay, we won't charge you as long as you give us information on everybody else. Yeah. So that worked for a while, and then the FBI worked out that this wasn't working out, that he was really fudging on both sides. So there was a, the FBI guy that he was reporting to was also a crook. And then when the FBI was going to arrest him, he, he tipped off Whitey, and Whitey scampered. Whitey scampered. So he, he was living in Santa Monica, California, which is about 3,500 miles away on the, other, on the East Coast. Eventually, one of those programs... You know, those criminal programs that kept, you know, he kept popping up on this. And, and a gal, his neighbor in Santa Monica, saw his face on a, one of these programs and called the FBI and said, that, that, that's my neighbor. He helps me with this, these cats. <laughs> and so when Whitey, they, they arrested him, put him back in jail. And Whitey said, God, I got screwed by a cat. Far out. But then he's in Florida in one of those low things he's 80 89 mm. years old i mm. mean he's old now um but for some reason last week they transferred him to a the most hostile violent prison in america in west virginia and the next day he was done and, right. a guy, and a guy a mafia enforcer that was serving life in there put a lock in a sock and just ripped him a new one and oh, killed him god so there you go all right. James Whitey Bulger. So it was mob justice in the end mob as well? Just, mob justice in the end. They don't yeah. forget. See, that's like they just yeah. don't forget. We shall not forget either. Yeah. Uh, because next is the very last edition of Jesus, Make It Stop. This yeah. Armistice Day 100 years ago, Glenn Harper will walk us through the very last week and the very last day of World War One. John Dubick, thank you. Thanks, Graham. Appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for turning up for World War One in the end, too. That was good. Yeah, we got there. We got there. Yeah. We're slow on the mark. Oh, no, no. It's just, <laughs> it was uh, much appreciated. <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jesus, make it stop. That famous last line from Siegfried Sassoon's poem. And if you look around the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, you'll see a special thing on the war poets as we have reached at long last. Armistice, famously, the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. One of the most formative things to happen in the 20th century, and that was the Great War. And it echoes today, following every week leading up to this propitious date. 
has been Glyn Harper, Massey University war historian and author of many books. Go look him up. Glyn, we've finally reached the 11th. Yes, Graham, we're here at last. A very important day in the history of the world. The day that the fighting for the First World War officially stops and it is finally on the Western Front where the Germans, while many won't acknowledge defeat, they have been defeated and they're in such a parlous military state that they do agree to start discussions for an armistice. So it all happens this week and of course the actual armistice is signed on the 11th of November 100 years ago today. There was that last week leading to it. Uh, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, sent an OK to Germany. Everyone said, yep, 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 yep. What now, during this week, is there any sense of urgency from both sides to get this thing done? Certainly there's urgency from the Germans uh, because they realise fully now how weak they are on the Western Front. They've had the scare of a revolution back in Berlin and spreading to other states of Germany and they're suffering from the blockade. So the civilians are starving. You know, their situation is desperate. Not so much urgency on the Allies' side and in fact one of the generals thinks they should actually continue and actually advance into Germany and head towards Berlin. That's Pershing and because the Americans are just getting warmed up in terms of military action on, on the Western Front. But the Allies are cautiously optimistic and they certainly want the fighting to end but they have been planning to fight into 1919 and make their big effort that year so they're not in such a rush but the Germans now are desperate to end the war. Last week we talked about, I think it was the final battle conflict that had a name anyway, yep. uh, Le Quinois. But since that, these final seven days, yep. since last Sunday, 100 years ago, what conflict and casualties were there? Well, the Battle of the Scarpa is still continuing and the actions are all across the Western Front. And in fact, the last New Zealanders of killed in the First World War are killed on the 7th of November, which is three days after Le Quinois, but they're artillery people. People. and the artillery units are still in the front line fighting and there's much fighting going on and as we mentioned last week Wilfred Owen is killed in this last week of the war people are fighting and dying up to the 11th hour of the 11th month in 1918 and uh, unfortunately that's a fact that some of them are killed in the last few days of the war and indeed some are killed on the last morning of the war good heavens Mm. What's the behaviour of generals and military leaders in this week? Are they really still pushing for advantages ahead of armistice and the knowledge that it's soon going to be over to maybe increase the strength of bargaining points when ceasefire finally comes about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, They're still trying to get into really good positions from which to bargain from. And even on the morning of the 11th, General Freiburg has a famous last charge to actually secure a bridge over an important canal. And he actually does it just after 11 o'clock, so slightly after the armistice has come into being. But there are small actions like this happening across the Western Front. And as I mentioned before, Pershing is actually keen to continue and push it on right into Germany. But the other generals recognise that now's the time. The Germans are defeated and they should end this conflict before more of their men are killed. So how well known is it amongst the military leaders that it's going to be the 11th? 
Well, it's not that well known because the Germans are still scrambling around to find representatives that can actually negotiate the armistice, or they think they're going to be able to negotiate the armistice. In actual fact, when we get to the process, there's very little negotiation. So they scramble around to find their team. They have to arrange safe passage for them through parts of occupied France, and they have to agree on a place and location to meet. So there are all these last-minute things happening. And, of course, this all happens in, in the last week. The Germans arrive and are presented with terms. They don't get to negotiate with them at all, and they're given 72 hours in which to accept them or, or the, the fighting will be renewed. So, you know, there's no um, aiming for the 11th. It's just that's the time that the German delegation finally gets to the location, finally start the armistice discussions, although they're very brief, and they have 72 hours from being presented with them to accepting them. And that 72 hours actually expires on the morning of the the 11th of November. Yeah, it's actually easy to forget the logistics that must be required. Mm. Getting these delegates from Germany mm. to this place in France, it's a dangerous trip. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are they given clear or assisted passage? How do they make it? Yeah, well, they are. The terms of, are agreed and they travel in vehicles flying prominent flags and with a military escort. And the path is cleared for them to get to this location, which is just outside of Paris in a railway siding. So they are assisted and they have an e a military escort. The uh, French units in front of them are warned not to fire on them and to clear the path. It, it does need some logistical arrangements, but it's a relatively small process and the German delegates get to the railway carriage in the forest of Campion just outside of Paris and start the armistice process. Why that railway carriage? Hmm. I would have thought, imagined it might be an HQ in some palace or some institution's yep. meeting room as, as you would think. Hmm. It's a railway carriage. Why? There's deliberate symbolism associated with it, and it's, a, and it's part of the twist of the knife by the French against the Germans, and it, it continues after this conflict, as I'll explain in a minute. But the railway carriage is chosen because it belonged to the family of Napoleon III. There's some debate as to whether it was his personal railway carriage or whether it was the Empress's, but it's got these big ends all through the carriage, which stands for Napoleon. And Napoleon III had been deposed after the Franco-Prussian War. I mean, he, he was defeated at the Battle of Saddam and that brought his empire to an end and instituted the Third Republic. So this is kind of payback. The French are using this carriage that has associations with Napoleon III and this is their turn to show the Germans and rub their nose in it that, that they have been defeated in this conflict. And if I can just jump ahead to 1940 now, Graham, Adolf Hitler signs the armistice that ends the fighting between France and Germany, supposedly ends the fighting between France and Germany and sets up the Vichy regime. He signs that armistice in the same railway carriage. He has it brought out from a museum. They sign it, the photographs are taken, and then he orders it to be burnt so it can't be repeated. So it's all the symbolism associated with the hostility between France and Germany as to who has won this round. And the railway carriage is there as a symbol to rub their nose into it when they've actually been defeated. I had no idea that railway carriage had resonance in 1918 yep. because uh, w the famous uh, you know, affair where Hitler was rubbing people's noses in it in 1940. I thought, oh, well, that's just to do with 1918, but it goes earlier Go, than that. It goes, goes right back to 1870. 
and he had it burnt. Yeah, he, he did. Uh, but, of course, the, the French built a replica of it, and it is now a tourist attraction um, just out of Paris, and many, many people have visited it. But it's not the original. It was, the original was destroyed on Hitler's orders. So the Germans making it there then you know, a, a day or two mm. before the armistice is signed. So I'm assuming then that on the 11th, it's the 11th hour of mm -hmm. the 11th day mm -hmm. of the 11th month. Yep. Yep. That was just happenstance. Yes, it was. As I say, the German delegation arrived. They were presented with a list of terms and there was a bit of psychological warfare where Foch made them ask for an armistice. He said, there's no negotiations. These are our armistice terms. You accept them or basically we'll renew the fighting. They spent 72 hours trying to get things changed and some things had to be changed because the Allies actually demanded more war material be handed over than the Germans possessed at the time. So they had to revise those figures. But that 72 hours expired on the morning of the 11th so the armistice is signed on the morning of the 11th just around five o'clock actually in the morning so very early and it comes into four six hours later which is an 11 o'clock on the 11th of november 1918 and you were saying there was fighting on that morning mm -hmm. it seems cruel and crushing uh yes they do um but of the 11th the orders have gone out and the guns do fall silent on the western front on that hour do you know of any anecdotes from personal experience being out there on the front? Mm -hmm. There would have been uh, machine gun fire and mm -hmm. then it hits 11 o'clock. What happens? Well, well, it stops. I'm not aware of anybody who, who was actually killed or wounded after the 11th on the Western Front. Do you know if they stood up? went and shook hands or no no it's, we do know uh what happened there was very little celebration for people who've been fighting for a long time uh the american doughboys they celebrated you know they let off cheers and yells and threw the hats in the air for others and for the new zealanders whom you know i know, I know a little bit about it was actually a bit of a stunned silence there was no celebration amongst those at the front line they felt relief they couldn't believe it they were numbed i think they were probably a little bit exhausted too but deep down a relief that they had survived this terrible terrible conflict there was some celebration by new zealand soldiers away from the front line these are the people in training camps and and in the uk and they let off a bit of steam and did quite a bit of drinking and rousing from what i understand but they are uh, and from what i know about but the actual soldiers on the front line no to them they, they felt a bit numb as one soldier recorded in his diary didn't know whether to laugh or cry but i was deeply thankful that i'd survived Right. Did any conflicts continue after full knowledge of armistice from either side? I'm talking the Western Front. Not so much on the Western Front. Um, it took a, quite a bit for the Germans in the East who were occupying large amounts of territory to realise they'd lost and would have to evacuate that territory. It takes a lot longer to settle with Ottoman Turkey, whose empire is falling apart, and a lot of fighting continues. But no, after the armistice, the guns on the Western Front, which is the main theatre of war, have fallen silent and will remain silent. Okay, now New Zealanders, mm -hmm. a big part of the march into yep. Germany. And it's amazing to think that Germany at armistice, to a large degree, was still on conquered territory. That's one of the reasons they felt ripped off. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All the vestiges of the military defeat were missing. The only Allied soldiers on German soil were prisoners of war. It's, you're absolutely right. 
none of their enemies had set foot on their territory um, after the Russians had been kicked out in 1914 after the Battle of Tannenberg. So, yeah, they didn't appear to be a defeated country, particularly as their army was allowed to march back carrying its weapons as well, not the heavy weapons, but certainly their, their sidearms and their, and their personal weapons. But after the armistice, the New Zealand division is one of the divisions earmarked to occupy Germany um, immediately, and they begin their march from Le Quenoir in France, which on the just near the Belgian border, and they march across Belgium and into Germany, and they settle around Cologne on the Rhine, and they're there as an occupying force until the end of March 1919. All right. We have 2020 hindsight. We know that armistice held mm-hmm. until World War II started. Yep. But was there a fear at that time that the armistice might not hold, that it was still tenuous? Uh, no, uh, because the once the Germans had agreed to it, there were some really harsh conditions associated with it, and those conditions put them in a position where they would never... Well, they couldn't renew the conflict easily. Uh, their army had to withdraw back to the German borders. There were bridges, heads over the Rhine given to the Allies. All their heavy weapons had been surrendered, particularly guns, uh, machine guns, trench mortars, all their aircraft, so they had no air force. Their navy was interred in the UK. They had to surrender most of their railway assets um, within 31 days, and a whole lot of other stuff had to happen. But critically, too, the blockade would continue until the peace treaty had been signed. So really, Germany could not renew the conflict because they had nothing to fight with because that had all been taken away under the terms of the armistice. So there were no instances recorded anyway of people feeling, thinking on the German side, look, this is unfair, damn it, I'm going to shoot my machine gun and rifle anyway. I'm not having it. I've been through all of this hell. What diff will it make if I just get my machine gun and say stuff? No, no, uh, the Germans tend to turn in on themselves. There was certainly a lot of hostility and a belief that they'd been stabbed in the back by November criminals, but the German army marches back and the fighting they do is against the left-wing elements and the revolutionaries and they actually are welcomed back by their own government who treats them as if they're a victorious army and actually allows them to have a victory parade in November 1918 of all things where their chancellor actually tells them welcome back you who return undefeated from the field of battle so uh, little wonder that the hostility is reserved for those who actually made the peace and signed the armistice and all those left wing elements that were blamed for uh, Germany's defeat it's all a myth of course because as as we've covered up till this time Germany is in no state to continue the war they've been absolutely defeated on the western from. But there was this legend that came about the imagery of those soldiers, German soldiers, marching back into Germany yep. with their arms, looking well fed. Yep. And this gave a, a lot of grist to the mill for those that, that felt they'd been ripped off. There's an Adolf Hitler was yep. one of them. Yep. Absolutely. Well, on the 11th hour of that day, where was Hitler? How did he find out about this? What was he doing? I just want to imagine it because he's um, a a significant figure in the upcoming decades. Um, Hitler is in a military hospital in a place called Paisvark, which is 80 uh, miles out of Berlin. He's recovering from uh, from being gassed and his uh, his, uh, eyes are bandaged and he hears the news and he's absolutely infuriated, feels cheated, disgusted, 
He calls it the greatest villainy of the century. Shaves his moustache in protest. You know, blames everybody but the German military and is determined to do something about it. And uh, this is when he decides he's going to enter politics and make a difference. And unfortunately, that was a very fateful decision for the rest of the world. Right. There is a strong belief that somehow they've been ripped off, that they've been winning the war. All the trappings of a military defeat were missing, but the military commanders have been very, very cagey and careful to do that, and all the blame for the military defeat is passed on to these people who signed the armistice, the Social Democrats, this new government, this Weimar Republic, the November criminals, and, of course, Jews get blamed for it as well, but the, who doesn't get blamed is the German military, particularly their military military commanders and those who had gone to deliberately chosen war in 1914 and criminally invaded smaller countries without warning. So, you know, they are able to transfer their defeat, because it's they they who've, who've started it and they who've, who've lost the war, onto people who weren't responsible and actually made the peace. It's, it's a bizarre situation, but that's exactly what happens. All right, the conditions of the German surrender and the Treaty of Versailles as well, these conditions, mm. we could say, led to the disaffection of Germany and it's maybe the wrong way of doing things because it did lead to World War II. They were harsh. What were the conditions? Uh, well, I, I don't think they were, were as harsh as people think they were. Certainly the Germans didn't like it because of, for several reasons, which I'll cover later, but as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, which did try and implement some of the 14 points, Germany lost some territory. They lost 13% of their territory and 10% of their population. But I must point out, the territory that Germany lost was not occupied by German people. It consisted of lands that they had conquered and annexed in the past through their victorious wars, and it included parts of Poland, a couple of states from Denmark, and of course Alsace-Lorraine, which they'd taken off France. So the territory they lost had very few Germans in it. They lost their colonies, but I've got to tell you, their colonies were not great economic and industrial empires either, you know, really uh, poor and, and uh, being neglected. They had to pay reparations, they had to acknowledge the war guilt, and they had to limit their armed forces and the Rhineland was to be demilitarised. Now why would Germany feel so upset about it? Really uh, they shouldn't have because of the peace treaties they'd levy were much more draconian than this but they were certainly hurt. They were hurt by the fact that it was signed at, at Versailles in the, in the Hall of Mirrors where the German Empire had been proclaimed in 1870. So there's all this symbolism again. The war guilt clause really hurt. They felt that they'd been blamed for the war when they felt others had actually contributed to it as well. And they also lost territory to people that they despised racially, the Poles and the Slavs. Now, if you want to look at a really tough settlement, a tough settlement against a defeated nation, a settlement that dismembers the country which incarcerates there are soldiers for two years, which strips Germany of territory, machinery, and which executed war criminals, you have to look to the settlement of 1945, but nobody ever criticises that. The settlement on Germany in 1945 is much harsher than the Treaty of Versailles ever was, but people don't think that's too bad. They deserved it, but the Treaty of Versailles really was not that draconian. They lost some land, they had to pay reparations, and I'll tell you now, they paid very little reparations, and they were always downscaled in the years that followed. They were hurt by the fact that it was a dictate and that they had to accept responsibility for the war. But I tell you now, the peace treaty of 1945 was far more severe than the Treaty of Versailles.
the Kaiser moves to the Netherlands. What happens to him from there on in? Because he was the symbol of uh, hatred towards the Hun, wasn't he? Absolutely. Well, he spent the rest of his life in the Netherlands and in Holland, and he lived long enough for that country to be invaded and occupied by the Wehrmacht, by the new German army, and they mounted an honour guard for him while he was in Holland, and he, he died, I think, in either late 1940 or early 1941. Good heavens. Mm. Okay. How does Germany commemorate this conflict these days? Do they have those fields strewn with the thousands and thousands of crosses that we look mm. at? Mm. No, their symmetries are a little different. They are quite sombre. They have usually concrete or cement headstones and multiple graves are very, very common. So they'll bury 20 or 30 people in one grave. The commemoration of the First World War has been very difficult for Germany and I think they've handled it reasonably well. There is a big German cemetery in, in Belgium called Langemark, which used to get very few German visitors. But I noticed last time I was there, there were buses of German school kids coming up to the cemetery and uh, spending time there and actually asking questions about, you know, what had happened and so on. And, of course, Germany has been, and France have been involved in several commemorations, joint commemorations, particularly around Verdun. So they have commemorated it, but it has been a very, uh, I think, difficult and it's sometimes painful experience for them to uh, for these commemoration years. You know, they have, they've certainly been painful for us as well, particularly when we commemorate things like Passchendaele. But we're now commemorating the end of the war, which did come with a relief to those who had survived. Yeah, it's not as if their casualties weren't significant. Good heavens. Well, that's right. The, you know, we're talking about, you know, nearly nine and a half million casualties in the, in the First World War and all countries suffered proportionally. Except for Serbia, the outlier. Ah, well, yes, Serbia suffers more than any other, as, as, as we've, we've covered earlier. All right. Talking about casualties, just in the time that you've been walking us through the death throes of World War One. What have been the casualties in this short amount of time that we've been covering? They are in the hundreds of thousands. The BEF suffers several hundred thousand casualties. In fact, they suffer most of their casualties in 1918 because they're constantly attacking. And, of course, New Zealand suffers its most casualties this year as well, and we're talking about several thousand New Zealand casualties in 1918. I've heard something extremely gruesome and horrific regarding the Western Front, uh, like especially places like Verdun, where you've mm. just had so many people practically vaporised, that mm -hmm. the soil there is particularly fertile and sought after because of four years of human blood and bone. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, in the um, I could say old days, say a couple of hundred years ago, when there had been a big battle in the European theatre, um, people did used to go and collect the bones and grind them up for fertiliser, uh, unless you're wealthy, of course, and your relatives have retrieved your body. Um, the, so that wouldn't surprise me about the fertility levels of the soil, although, as we're aware, most attempts were made to actually find people, and when, when they're found, to give them a burial and in a, in a war cemetery somewhere and of course at Verdun there's the famous ossuary of bones but not everybody could be found. One can trace the echoes from World War One right through to today if you're having a look at the Middle East but so significantly early 90s with the Balkans some people have said mm -hmm. World War One didn't end until the settlement between the Balkan states formerly Yugoslavia. 
the war is still continuing. I mean, the Middle East, as you point out, is really unstable and there are many, many problems, political problems there, all of which stem from the legacy of the First World War. The Balkans seems to have been reasonably uh, sorted, um, but also we live with the health legacy of the First World War as well. Um, when you think about all those damaged soldiers who came back, they were traumatised by the experience, but they were told to get on with their lives. And that trauma, I think, was passed down through generations, as were some of their health problems because they were all encouraged to smoke and cigarettes were part of the ration they got for free so they all became heavy smokers. Some, of, A lot of them turned to drink uh, to get over some of the, the nightmares that they were having and so on. So the health legacy from the First World War does continue through generations and, and up until today. Yeah, people came back different people and and I'm sure there'll be many people listening who'll have sort of memories of this that a family is different and under much more stress when these men came home harder to cope and domestic trouble absolutely and that that remains a legacy from the first world war and and a destructive legacy as well and the unexploded ordnance by no means do 100% of those bombs go off do they and they're still finding them today no, the iron harvest, as they call it, continues. And you go to many uh, small farms in the region and they all have their stack of ordnance that they've ploughed up and they usually collect it in a corner and wait for uh, the French or the Belgian military authorities to come around and deal with it. But it's quite dangerous and some of those, some of those shells are active and some of those shells are also gas shells, so they, they still have gas in them, so they need to be treated very, very carefully. But as I said, the iron harvest continues and is going to continue for quite some time. Yeah, I understand there are millions. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and they, they, they keep finding more and more each year. Good heavens. Glenn Harper, thank you so much for this series, your vast knowledge and being able to walk us through it in plain English. We really appreciate it on this very special day. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Graham, and um, it's made me think about things as, as well. So I still have much to learn about the war, but, uh, but I hope it's been useful. Jesus, make it stop. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. By way of saying an extra thank you to Glenn Harper for all his efforts over these last seven weeks, walking us through the last weeks of World War One. He's a great author, um, and I just want to recommend some of his books. He's done Kippenberger, an inspired New Zealand commander. In the face of the enemy, I've read that. That's awesome. If grim, of course, uh, the subject matter is The Complete History of the Victoria Cross and New Zealand, Dark Journey, Three Key Battles of the Western Front, Images of World War I, uh, Photographic Record, Letters from Gallipoli, uh, and another book on Passchendaele, The New Zealand Story. I recommend you go have a look at those if you can. Do them a favour. Why not? It's news time, 11 o'clock. We continue with uh, the armistice-themed, World War I-themed material after that. I'll tell you immediately after. News, sport and weather.